Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 17th, 2012, and my guest is Becky Pettit, professor of sociology at the University of Washington. Her latest book is Invisible Men, Mass Incarceration and the Myth of Black Progress. Becky, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Your book's about the growth of the prison and jail population in America, its impact on people's lives, and how it affects our understanding of social statistics. Let's start with some basic facts. What has happened to the prison population in the United States over the last 30 or 40 years? Over the last 35 years, the prison population has um, quintupled. Uh, we are we now have approximately one or 2.3 million Americans who are in prisons or jails on any given day. Uh, that number has been about the same for the last four years. So after several decades of an increase, um, we have leveled off at about 2.3 million. And one of the key features of that growth in incarceration, most scholars agree, uh, that the growth was, uh, was largely driven by shifts in policing, prosecution, and sentencing. Um, there are about almost half of offenders are, um, in prison or jail for nonviolent drug or property crimes. Uh, and one of the key things that's happened over that time is that, um, the risk of incarceration has become increasingly concentrated among those with very low levels of education. So over half of inmates, young inmates between about 20 and 35, have less than a high school diploma. And is that a new phenomenon, and if so, relative to, say, what time period? Because well, I, my, my impression is is that crime is is often is concentrated among both young and male folks. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me that a disproportionate share of the prison population is young and male, especially um, uh, in in that, due to that increase, if it's due to nonviolent crimes. Yeah, so if we put this in a longer historical perspective, uh, we've been collecting fairly reliable data on the inmate population since about 1925. And from 1925 to about the early 1970s, um, the, the prison population was very stable um, and at about one-tenth of one percent of the population. That's, that's and, 100 per 100,000. Right. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's the, about right. Yeah. That's yep, the number that's right. that, that you, uh, that's evidently commonly used per 100,000. That's right. That's right. And what's happened over the last 35 years or so is that this, there's been this dramatic increase so that by 2008, uh, that number was about 750 per 100,000. Massive increase. Uh, Massive increase. And one of the other things, and one number that's, that floats around a lot is if we think about it as a fraction of the adult population, those over age 18, it's one in 100. One in 100 American adults is in prison or jail on any given day. If we include people who are in, under other forms of criminal justice supervision, 
uh, it's one in 31. So, but one of the, and there has one in, long, wait a minute, one in 31, meaning 3%, 3%, one in 31. Yes. Meaning so 3%, 3% of the adult population of the, of, United, the adult population. of the United States is either in prison or jail or what was the third, the, the other category that boosted under it? the supervision of the criminal justice system. So that's parole. Probation, parole. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And this is, it, it is historically unique. It is also comparatively unique. The U.S. incarcerates a higher fraction of its population than any other advanced industrialized country by quite a lot. Um, but one of the one of the key issues is that um, for a long time, uh, there's been very huge gender and race disproportionality in incarceration. Men are much more likely to be in prison or jail than are women. Right. African-Americans are much more likely to be in prison or jail than are whites or Hispanics or any other racial group. Um, and one of the key features, and people with low levels of education have historically been overrepresented in the criminal justice system, but that has increased quite dramatically over the last 35 years. And it, it's not entire, it's not surprising if you think about the kinds of crimes and, and activity that now carry with them custodial sentences, crimes that may be motivated as much by economic, uh, reasons as, as anything else and thinking about, you know, drug sales, um, and property offenses and other things that, um, 35 years ago, people, even if they were caught and convicted, they weren't, they weren't, uh, put in prison or jail typically. Um, prison and jail was reserved for violent, primarily very violent offenses. So that so there's been this real dramatic shift. There is still gender inequality in incarceration. There is still racial inequality in incarceration, and there is still educational inequality. And one of the key features for my work, and this is important in the context of my new book, is that that educational inequality has become so dramatic that among young black men who've dropped out of high school, a huge fraction of them, upwards of two thirds, can expect to spend at least a year in prison. It's an extraordinary number. Uh, mm-hmm. well, let me ask you about the um, one of the challenges of these data, that, and one of the things you learn from reading your book, which mm-hmm. has nothing to do with prisons, particularly prisons are an example of it, but uh, defining data and, and ratios are, is tricky in social science. So when you talk about the prison population, uh, does that mean part year, full year, any one day? And you just gave a number the way you described it, which is, I think, one of the uh, one of the ends of of one of the deci- of the assumptions you could make, which is on any on a particular day today, and we don't literally have a count of how many. We don't have a census of a literal census. It's an estimate in some dimension, but on any particular day, uh, I think you said that that one in thirty one number, almost three percent. Um, excuse me, over three percent. Uh, that one in 31 number is on any particular day, right? Yes. So an, an, another way to measure it would be how many people are in prison or in jail or under the supervision of the system, the justice system, for the entire, say, calendar year of 2011. Do, we, do, we, do the numbers get broken down in those ways, or are we always kind of trying to guesstimate what the size of the population is? 
mean, just like we have for any population number. Obviously, people live and die. People move. Sure. They immigrate. They emigrate. People go in and out of prison, sometimes multiple times, I assume, in a year, in jail, in prison, in, in a year even. Sure. So it's one of the challenges is just methodological here. Yeah. So when we hear a number like there are 2.3 million Americans in prison or jail, that is, that's a point in time estimate. And, um, the Bureau of Justice Statistics does a census of facilities, uh, and it, it varies depending on the facility, usually once a year in July or in December. And so those numbers are, are essentially head counts who's in on a given day. We can also think about, and that's the, that's the stock of inmates. And seasonal, right? So it's, it's well, November. Yeah. It's a particular time of year for whatever it's worth. Sure, it is seasonal. And one of the things that um, we've, we had observed um, over you know, the long buildup from the early 1970s through the late first decade of the 2000s was that um, you know, year on year there was growth. So even though there might be some seasonality, there was still a year-on-year growth. And um, and that's one of the things that we have seen really in these last four years is we've seen leveling overall nationwide. And much of that is being driven by certain states where we're seeing actual declines in some states. So, for example, New York is seeing some declines. And I think one of the primary explanations for that is New York is moving to a whole range of what we think of as diversions, alternatives to correctional sentences, drug courts, and and the like. Also, the state of California is seeing declines. And some of that uh, is due to the Plata decision and the idea that California Which is was... Which is the Supreme Court decision that essentially ruled that California, um, inmates in California were not, uh, receiving adequate health care. In, inmates, uh, in correctional facilities have a, uh, constitutionally protected right to health care. And the overcrowding in California prisons was so, uh, extreme that inmates were essentially, um, not receiving adequate treatment, um, and, uh, Punishment was uh, deemed cruel and unusual, I believe. Um, and so um, the state was mandated to uh, reduce their prison population. And they've done a, a number of things in order to accomplish that. But what we're seeing is that statewide, there has actually been a decline in inmates. Um, but still, at, at the national level, we see this 2.3 million number. And it's been pretty, st- I mean, pretty stable uh, for the last four years. Now, there are clearly inmates cycle through, and the jail, jails, jails are typically county run or at, at a county, at, a, at the county level, and um, they ha- house inmates who are either awaiting trial um, or who have a sentence of less than a year. State and federal facilities typically hold inmates that have been convicted and their sentence is longer than a year. So what we see is we at the at the jail level we see a large cycle I mean huge numbers of people cycle through. So um right. the you know people say there're 12 million 12 million visits to local jails. On any given at any given day, it's I can't remember the number exactly, but it's about eight hundred thousand, somewhere in that you know about three quarters of a million people. And but 
over the course of a year, 12 million, there are 12 million visits. And if we factor out the people who go through more than once, um, then it's about 9 million people. 9 million individuals have some spent at least some time in jail. Prisons, because by definition, people are there longer, there's less cycling. Um, and, but estimates suggest that about, you know, about three quarters of a million people are released from prison, um, over the course of a year. So, I mean, 700,000. And so, so these are, you know, clearly my work focuses primarily on people when they're incarcerated, but this is something that we've talked quite a lot about, um, publicly, about reentry programs, you know, um, uh, things like the Second Chance Act, which have been, which was designed to increase uh, public investments in training and education for people who are being released, because the vast majority of inmates in both local facilities as well as in um, state and federal prisons do get released. Estimates suggest about 95%. So at some point, most people who have spent some time in prison or jail will get out. Yeah, it's um, there, there's a weird to me weird maybe not to other people but to me weird interaction between say prison labor and uh, non-prison labor. Um, people don't like prison labor that quote competes with non-prison labor, but of course we all compete with each other. So it's a weird thing to me. Uh, but then you have this idea that of training. It seemed, would seem like a good idea to train prisoners to be able to do something when they get out so they don't become criminals again. And yet I think there's some um, opposition to that, that somehow either they, quote, don't deserve it or it's competing with honest people's labor. I, I, there's a lot of political tension there, right? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, the prison system, and I mean that to encompass a federal, state, and local uh, facilities. Um, when we think about the prison system or the criminal justice system, um, about, you know, 40, if we go back to the 50s or the 60s, there was a much of, much more of a rehabilitative philosophy and that the idea that, um, people committed crimes, they spent some time in prison or jail, paid their debt to society, hopefully emerged on the other side better prepared to participate. And that might have involved, and there, and that may have involved some rehabilitation while incarcerated, um, in the, in the, um, some kind of job training or some kind of educational program. And, you know, many of those programs persist in facilities. Um, and however, in the context of this massive increase in incarceration, the amount of money we can devote to Rehabilitative programs, in contrast to just supervision, um, is is dwindling, uh, rel- given the per per person who's incarcerated, right? So sure, well, yeah. spending on yeah, spending on prisons has gone up, but there are you know a number of things that demand lots of resources: supervision, increased increases in solitary confinement. Um, the aging of prison facilities, the aging of inmates themselves, the healthcare needs of inmates. And so there's less and less available per person for education and training and things like that. Yeah, basically, so, you're running a hotel for 2.3 million. It's a 2.3 million person hotel chain with the TVs aren't as large and numerous, uh, and the beds aren't as comfortable, and there's less marble in the bathroom. But 
Mm-hmm. You get it's expensive, obviously. It is very expensive. And so this is one of the I mean, one of the issues that a number of states have wrestled with in the economic downturn of the late 2000s is that, you know, they have very few state resources to devote to a whole range of things and in right. and, and prison facilities are one of them. And so, um, you know, states have to cut or have found themselves cutting back. One, and there are a couple of ways to, to limit prison costs. One is to limit the number of inmates. And another is to limit the services that they receive while they're incarcerated. Yeah. Well, based on your earlier remark about reductions in California and New York, I think probably they're doing a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, but the question I want to ask is, given this, um, this growth, I mean, the problem, the challenge of this kind of, um, of this field, obviously, is that there's an incredibly complicated interplay between crime, policing, and sentencing, right? They're all, mm-hmm. they're all changing over time. Uh, and so when we look at this big increase of multifold, manyfold, multiple number in, in inmates and people incarcerated, it's it could be due to all three of those factors getting more uh serious it could right crime rates could be increasing policing could be more intense and sentencing could be longer or it could be crime rates are about the same but we catch more criminals and we just keep them in jail longer um uh, mm-hmm. do we know anything about about that breakdown of of those three factors and in particular given that it's um it's it, from what you say. It's it's largely an increase in non what what we might call I don't know what what the technical term is nonviolent crime, mm-hmm. um, like drug users, etc. Uh, which of course has some violence related to it for other reasons. But uh, do we know how much of this increase is due to changes in crime or policing or sentencing? I know people make different claims because they have a stake in it. In those claims. Mm-hmm. So do do we know anything reliable about that? Yeah, I mean the evidence uh is pretty clear. Uh the crime rate is down um to levels levels we haven't seen since the late 1960s. So crime is way down from its historic heights and it this is true no matter what indicator you look at. Um you could you can look at um murders, you can look at violent crime, you can look at property crime. Um any range of them. Um, there clearly were peaks in the crime rate um, in the early 80s, in the early 90s, depending on what measure you looked at. But now crime is down, um, way down. And, um, you know, the evidence suggests, you know, depending on what crime you look at specifically, um, there was this increase between last year and or this year, 2010, 2011, um, but it's a pretty small increase on a pretty low level to begin with. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think most scholars agree that, um, the buildup of the criminal justice system and certainly the maintenance at the level that it is now is not about crime or certainly not for the last, oh, about almost 20 years increases in crime because crime hasn't been increasing. Um, and instead, um, it, it has to do with some of the other things that you mentioned, which is increased policing um, and um, surveillance. And when people then are arrested, then there's increasing prosecution. 
Now, it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to trial. It means they may be um, plea bargaining. There's a, a range of other um, ways uh, to resolve these cases. And then, um, and then there are mandatory minimum sentences. And so those mandatory minimum sentences require that people are spending time in prison or jail. Now, some states are clearly experimenting with diversions or alternatives to custodial sentences where people may engage in drug court. They may, um, have, so they may, may receive, um, it may be a drug related offense and they may receive drug treatment as a, um, uh, uh, sort of a resolution. They may receive community-based supervision, some kind of a probationary sentence. Um, so, so there are movements, and I think these are f- as much fiscally driven as anything else, as far as I, I can tell. It's not an area I study, but from what I understand. And I think um, one of the other things that's really driving the increase, and this is particularly acute in some states like California, um, are, are parole revocations. Where it's not necessarily, someone may be, may have been released on parole and, um, they may not even have committed a new offense, but they may be in violation of parole. And there are lots of ways people can violate parole. They can not show up with their meeting with a parole officer or not, not update their address, um, have a dirty drug test. And there's a whole range of things that can lead to a parole revocation where someone will then go back into prison um, and then for uh, for a longer period of time. And that can really, it's been shown in some states, California in particular, to really swell the ranks of those incarcerated. So it's not just that they're having, they're getting mandatory minimums, but then they're actually having to serve the full extent of the sentence and potentially longer. Well, coming back to our earlier point, I mean, I, I, a lot of people argue that the crime-prison relationship runs in the opposite direction, that because we've imprisoned so many people, the crime rate's lower, right? I mean, one, mm-hmm. one view is, oh my gosh, with crimes falling, why are we having so many people in prison? And some people say, well, <clears throat> causation runs the other direction. We, sure. We've imprisoned a lot of people. We've given up on rehabilitation. We've said the best way to keep people from being criminals is to keep them out of the general population and lock them up. Not a very mm-hmm. attractive, um, s- uh, pleasant viewpoint, but it might be true. Um, it certainly reduces repeat offenses if you can't, if you're in jail. Um, mm-hmm. so do we, is any, is there any rely, I'm sure there isn't, but is there any reliable, I'll ask anyway, cause I'm polite. Is there any reliable evidence, uh, that, that, that it disentangles that causation problem? It's obviously a tricky thing. Yeah, that's a tough one. And, you know, there've been some, you know, some, some economists, Steve Levitt among them, sure. um, who has looked at that. What's the relationship between the growth and, inc- if you think about it that way, what's the relationship between the growth and incarceration and the decline in crime? And certainly, you know, some of the decline in crime has to do with people not being on the streets. Yeah. Um, and how much, you know, estimates vary. And, and, and this is a case where, you know, it's it's really tough empirical problem to solve. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, but but there are a couple of things that are potentially going on there. You know, one you you are removing people who let's think of as as most at risk, um, and um, removing them from sort of eligible the eligible pool. Um, you know, there have been demographic shifts over time. Uh, you know, there there are a number of other factors, but you know, yeah, we, certainly there's some reason to believe that. Um, well, there's there's reason to believe that um, 
this growth in incarceration has led to the decline in the crime rate. Um, but it, you know, that, that's, that's not all of it. I don't, I don't think anyone would argue that that's all of it. The other part you just alluded to is, is demographics, right? A huge, um, I've always believed, I thought I saw evidence to back it up, but of course I was just confirming my bias, um, that the proportion of the population that's 18 to 24 and male is a huge, has a huge impact on crime rates. But having said that, um, when you look at the growth that the, I think in your book starts around in the 80s, uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're looking at a lot of, I assume what we're looking at is, is the availability of crack cocaine at a relatively low price, which is a technological, speak like an economist, a technological improvement <laughs> in mm-hmm. people's ability to buy cocaine in small amounts, mm-hmm. which um, has been, pardon the phrase, cracked down on rather dramatically by the criminal justice system. And uh, that alone must explain a huge portion of that growth. Or is, am I exaggerating? A huge portion of the growth in, in incarceration. The, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no doubt that the crack ec- epidemic and and the drug war more generally um, is a huge uh, explanation for the growth in incarceration. But I think one of the things that it, the scholars who study this historically really point to the Rockefeller drug laws in New York State and the criminalization of um, not the the criminalization of drug possession and sale and the custodial sentences that adhere to that as being a real um, uh, one of the the key uh, drivers that led to the increase and and you know and there are a couple of things that are really important to sort of to, to keep in mind when we look at the role of of drugs drug policy crack cocaine specifically um, is that we one of the things that we know and and to point to this you know we know that um kids are delinquent boys in particular are delinquent yeah. and most young boys across racial groups across socioeconomic uh, status different class groups education levels engage in some form of delinquent activity when they're relatively young in that age group exactly you're talking about 18 to 24 or 16 to 24 or you know 18 14. to 30 yeah <laughs> yeah and so when they're when they're engaging in they're they're using drugs they're selling drugs um they may uh engage in property crime a range of other things but one of the things that we have done as a society is we've criminalized certain kinds of things differently than others, which has led to, and this is part of the, I think, one of the key explanations for why the growth in incarceration has affected certain sociodemographic groups differently. The evidence suggests that young white men and young black men use drugs at about the same rate. If anything, young whites may use drugs more, right? But they're not, but they're much less likely to spend time in prison because of that. And that largely has to do with where we, where kids use drugs, where they sell drugs, and how we police. So, uh, young African American kids, other uh, kids of color, kids of, with low, low, of low SES, who live in urban, SES you know, being. Uh, socioeconomic status, sorry. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> um, you know, and who maybe live in high poverty urban areas are much more likely to use 
and and sell drugs in relatively public places. And that's exactly where where you find greater levels of surveillance, more police presence, higher likelihood of getting caught. If caught, then they're prosecuted and ending ending up in prison or jail, right? So and so that's a I mean that's one key distinction why we continue to see such large uh race differences and class differences in criminal justice contact even though drug use as far as you know other survey data suggest isn't isn't different across race groups for example among young men and um and then another key thing which is something i think states are thinking um a lot about and, and how to remedy inequalities in in sentencing, which is, you know, the very classic distinction between crack and powder cocaine. And so for the same amount of crack cocaine, sentences were typically much, much longer than for equivalent amount of powder cocaine. And when we think about who was more likely, even going back into the late 70s, early 80s, who was more likely to use crack versus powder? African-Americans, those with low, low levels of of education or living in impoverished neighborhoods were much more likely to be using crack than, um, than other kids, you know, other young people. So, so we see these, these sentencing, the, the role of policing and prosecution and sentencing having these real disparate impacts on different sociodemographic groups. Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a minute because one of the, one of the themes, a, a very, um, occasional theme on this program is what uh, Bruce Yandel calls the bootlegger and Baptist explanation, which is for public regulation, which is that uh, a lot of regulations are the strange um, coalition of people who have high-minded altruistic motives and those who have very self-interested motives. So there are a lot of people in America who don't like drug use, don't like other people using drugs, or for a variety of reasons think they're bad, so they support all kinds of rules about Drug use, uh, limitations on drug use, laws against it, and, and sentencing for crimes against, crimes that involve drugs. But then you have people who have a direct, private, self-interested, uh, interest in, in building prisons, like construction companies, uh, prison guard unions, et cetera. And you alluded to that at one point in your book. So I'd like you to talk about that and see if there's some way to, that might explain, uh, this distinction between crack and powder cocaine enforcement. Obviously, I think suburban white kids in rich neighborhoods and high education parents, um, they don't like uh, their kids going to jail. And they have a lot of political power relative to kids and coming from households where the parents are very poor and life is uh, more disjointed and education is low. So we, all, we understand that. Um, that that's just, you know, that's a, that's a reality that political power is not uh, in a demo- even in the the finest democracy is not very um, equally distributed. But what about this bootlegger and Baptist ar- argument that that some people with some direct economic interest have been pushing for this increased these increased sentencing and incarceration? Do we have any evidence about that? Lobbying data or contributions to politicians? You know anything about that? Yeah, I think the um the best evidence about that um gets back to California and the state of California and the role of um prison union guards or the union uh the prison prison guard unions, sorry. Um and um 
my colleague, actually, who's now here at the University of Washington, Catherine Beckett, has done some really uh, wonderful work, and other people have have done similar work in which they've looked at the the economic and political interests of certain groups, um, and prison guards are one of them. Prison guards have an incredibly powerful union in the state of California. Um, and although I've never seen it, I've heard heard it alluded to multiple times. Um, apparently, when you walk out of the state house in Sacramento, California, right the there's a memorial to a prison guards right at the entrance or the exit. I guess when you're walking out, you walk would walk right into it. And I think that it's it speaks to sort of a very the very powerful uh, sort of role that um, prison guards have played in the development and expansion of prisons, specifically in the state of California. Um, I think that this is also true in other places um, where, you know, there there's an argument to be made that um, certainly there are private prison interests in some states, not in all states, um, and that... Um, that that that's an opportunity uh for growth economic growth um and um and that there you know there are uh organizations that provide services to inmates and that's a way in which that you know they can um benefit from sure. increased growth but i think you know the the sort of the in the context of that and and at a time when you know if you sort of can recall back to, you know, the early 1980s and this idea that, um, you know, crack cocaine was viewed as an epidemic in particularly in America's most disadvantaged communities um, and that there was this r- real concern about, you know, health and safety and so in lots of ways, you know, there, there are these real concerns, but, you know, they may have been overstated by the media, but even so that we're driving sort of this more punitive philosophy at a time when, and even then and later and now, where there's no one making the case on the other side, which is, okay, wait, let's look at what does this mean, this massive buildup, what consequences has it had for certain sociodemographic groups? How is it being distributed? How is the risk of incarceration being distributed? What are the benefits to public safety, right? And and how has the increased cost potentially outweighed the benefit given um, the sort of um, large-scale removal of certain subgroups of the population who arguably when they get out of prison or jail are worse off than when they went in? And we may individually say that that's fine, or we may think that that's punishment, but collectively, if we think about, you know, well, those subgroups of the population and those individuals in particular have needs, um, and, and if they're not able to contribute to, you know, if they're not able to work, if they're not able to contribute to their families, if they're not able to participate in the civic life of their communities, that we may all be actually worse off than we were before. So, so the flip side is, you know, on the one hand, you do have, um, prison guards, you have private, uh, prison, uh, operators, you have uh, service providers in, uh, in facilities who may be arguing for a more punitive, uh, approach. Um, and, you know, people who are tough on crime. That's that. That's politically quite appealing, I think, yep. to quite a lot of people. 
And, you know, when, when you have really nothing on the other side, no politician wants to be viewed as soft on crime. In environments where judges are elected, they don't want to be viewed as soft on crime. And so there's a real passivity on the, on the other side, um, where, um, what does it really cost us? And I think this is a silver lining to the, um, the economic downturn of the first decade of the 2000s and that, um, states have really had to think hard about whether this is a good use of resources. Yeah. Because they just don't have enough money. Yeah. No, I'm, uh, you raise a lot of interesting issues. I mean, I'm, uh, just to take an example, you don't hear very often. Raising the minimum wage seems like a good thing. If it prices low-skilled labor out of the labor market, it encourages people to find what we economists call the uncovered sector, the places where you can work that aren't subject to the minimum wage, and crime is one of those. And um, we have a lousy education system in, in these areas, in, in poor areas of America, inner cities. Um, and you know, I, I agree with you that on an individual level, uh, the system can be just on a overall level. The other forces that are working on these folks who are there, just they're ugly. Um, mm-hmm. So, no easy answer. But we'll turn at the end. I want to talk a little bit maybe about what we could be, what could we we could do to about some of these issues. But let's um, let's talk about which is the sort of the, the heart of the book, which is the impact of the size of the prison population and its growth in particular on how we assess social data and, and social trends. And uh, give us some examples of how we have misinterpreted data because we forget that there's an increasingly large number of people in jail. Yeah, I think sort of the, the, key, the key observation to begin with is that there's been this massive increase in incarceration. And while there's... One in a hundred American adults is incarcerated, and I mean in in custody, so in in federal, state, local prisons or jails. Um, that and that rep- so that represents one in a hundred American adults. That the risk of spending time in prison or jail is not equally distributed across the population, right? So men are more likely to be in prison or jail than our women. African Americans are more likely to be in prison or jail than our whites or Hispanics. And one of the key features of this this growth in over the last 35 years or 40 years is that um, those with low levels of education are more likely to be in prison or jail. So let me just give an example, which is, and and they're siphoned into prisons or jails and out of our view of sort of the American condition. And by that, I mean that when we hear that the unemployment rate is, I believe, 7.7% right now, that data come from what's called the current population survey. The current population survey is a, is a survey of 50 to 60,000 individuals who live in households. We've been collecting data just about the same way since the late 1930s when the survey was instituted essentially to an, to resolve disputes between the Hoover and Roosevelt administrations over the depths of poverty and unemployment, right? We were going to do a survey, or we were going to do the census in 1930, and we were going to do the census in 1940, but we didn't have a good sense in between at a national level of how 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 high was the unemployment rate and how was it distributed across different, you know, subgroups of the population as well as geography. 
So we started doing this survey called the Current Population Survey. It was initially called the Sample Survey of Unemployment. It became the Current Population Survey in 1942. And that's the data that we use. You know, we hear about it monthly when we're looking at the unemployment rate, among lots of other things. Now, those data don't include the incarcerated population. And, and as you point out, they, they, they miss other people too, right? They miss homeless no, people. They miss military people often. Uh, right. But it's – go ahead. And I would argue that most of the people they miss, although this is an empirical question, most of the people that are systematically missed by that survey and others that are like it are more disadvantaged than the average American. And I use that term loosely. But so the idea is that, you know, we've had this huge growth and it's siphon of incarceration and it's siphoning the most disadvantaged segments of the population into prisons and jails and out of the view of the surveys like the current population survey. And so reasonable scholars, political analysts, um, you know, a number of people have made really quite bold claims about progress among African Americans. And you can think about this in the context of, you know, we, we recently reelected our first African American president. And many people point to that as a real symbol of progress among for African Americans. And clearly there's been, you know, an increase in the black middle class and a range of other, you know, positive indicators. But people have used data from the current population survey to make the claim that the high school dropout rate among young black men has has declined. Um, and it turns out that m- my research shows that if you include inmates who are disproportionately high school dropouts, you see no improvement in the high school dropout rate since the early 1990s. And, and no decline in the racial gap in the high school dropout rate. Um, you also find that among young black men who've dropped out of high school, they're more likely to be in prison or jail than they are to be employed. Now, we wouldn't see that if we just focus on those who are in the current population survey. And then a third, I think, important finding is that, you know, people made the claim that, you know, the election of Barack Obama America's first African-American president was driven in some, in no small part to record high turnout rates among African-Americans. And it, it's clear that the number of African-Americans who voted in 2008 and probably in 2012, although we don't know yet, um, probably broke, broke records. But the fraction of the population, certainly among those with low levels of education, did not. And it, and one of the primary explanations for that is because such a large fraction of young black men with low levels of education are in prison or jail, and they are excluded from voting, at least in 48 states, and evidence suggests that they don't vote in the others. But um, And so the voter turnout rate among those most disadvantaged young black men was the same as it was voter turnout. And by this, by this, I mean the fraction of the population that voted, not of eligible voters. Right. But the fraction of the population that voted was the same as it was in the 1980 Carter Reagan election. Now, that uh, that really challenges ideas of black progress, certainly in the age of Obama. Yeah, it's fascinating, uh, depressing set of uh, (laughs) factoids, uh, which. Yeah, I think are basically true. Uh, I, I think uh, you know there there is some challenges in interpreting them, and the um, obviously, and you have to make some assumptions when you when you make those calculations. They're not they're not s- totally straightforward. But mm-hmm. your your basic point is that is that if there's been a 
a large rise in the proportion of the African-American population that is low-skilled, that is not visible to social science survey efforts, your measures of social science um, benchmarks are going to be distorted. I think I think that's undeniably true. As something, it's not really a consolation. I was going to say it's a consolation. It's something of a consolation. Low-income people don't vote very much anyway, as much mm-hmm. as higher-income people. But it's not like they don't vote. So obviously it makes a difference. It's a question of... It's an empirical question of how important the magnitudes are. Um, I, I, I found the I found the data on the dropout rate to be particularly interesting, um, and this is a general problem. You know, and I, I think the technical term and statistic is censoring. You have a lot of zeros, uh, people who aren't either in the data or representing the data as uh, not being doing something. So, for example, in regular economic data, you have people who don't work. Well, so what's their wage rate? Is it a zero? Or is it what they produce that's not in labor market activity on some kind of hourly basis? What we typically do is we exclude them. Um, mm-hmm. And that has, we do that because it's practical. We don't do it because it's the right thing to do. And the point you're making, which I is dear to my um, heart as an economist, is that when you're looking at averages, and particularly when you're looking at medians, if you're changing the left or right hand tail of the distribution systematically for reasons that have nothing to do with the phenomenon you're looking at, you're going to get a very distorted view. And your work is an example of this phenomenon in a pretty dramatic way because it's not like um, they're not in the data. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the intuition, I mean, the, the, the primary insight in my book is an extremely simple one. And... You know, whether or not, uh, we agree on the assumptions we make about how we estimate, uh, levels of employment among inmates or, um, what their education level is, um, or w- whether they would have voted if they could have, um, is really a secondary point. I, pr- I fully appreciate the concerns that people raise about that when you think about, well, what is the counterfactual? What would it look like right. if they weren't incarcerated? And I, I don't know, actually, the answer to that. I mean, I, I've thought a little bit about that. But but I think the primary observation is is that when we're making claims over time and the sample we're, we're observing over time is shifting in ways that affects those claims, I mean, that's, that's deeply problematic. I mean, that, that w- when we're making claims about the general population and we're systematically excluding certain subgroups, those who essentially make the picture look worse, um, then that's, that's, a, that's the problem that I'm observing, which is, you know, it, it, we categorically exclude certain subgroups of the population from these surveys, like the current population survey and many, many others. Those are related to health, those are related to family formation, just a wide range of surveys. And, you know, there have been different points in American history where we've missed certain subgroups. And if you think about during World War II, we, we missed young men who were in yeah. active duty military. If yeah. you think about the late 60s and early 70s, also missing young men you know, who were called up to active duty military. Active duty, you know, there are more people incarcerated now than there are in active duty, active duty military. And, and, and there are very select, those who are incarcerated represent the most disadvantaged segments of the population. So we're just, we're excluding them. Now, how much difference does it make? And that's where, I, I mean, this is something that I've tried to put some 
um, to bring some data to bear on this in, in the book. Um, but I, you know, I recognize that people might dispute exactly how I've done that or, or question that. But it, one of the things that's really important to me as a, as a sociologist who's interested in the study of inequality, I, I fully appreciate that if, if I were an employer and I was trying to set wages or if I were working for a state unemployment insurance department, I'd care what the unemployment rate is, right? I'd want to know how many people or what fraction of the population is unemployed but looking for work. And that's because that's a really good measure of slack, labor slack, right? If I work for a, a political um, campaign and I want to find and tap into veins of eligible voters, I'd be really, I, I'm very concerned about the voter turnout rate among eligible voters. But as a sociologist, sure. I'm really interested in how we understand inequality. And so, you know, it, it's, it's as important to me to understand who's not working, sort of thinking about everyone who's unemployed and not working, not just those who are still looking for work. Um, and, and even for those who are incarcerated, who may be in some sense employed, but they're not covered by usual, usual, you know, conventional bargaining agreements or minimum wage regulations or anything for that matter. Um, and so, so from my perspective, you know, it's it's much it's more interesting to me to understand social inequality if we look at those people who are also excluded. Yeah, and as the labor economist to me from my old days as a labor economist when I was a little more uh, was more narrowly focused, one of the things that labor economists look at is uh, time out of the labor force and its effect on your skill level. There's depreciation, obviously. <coughs> For when people leave the labor force, uh, either voluntarily or involuntarily, and then if you get arrested and you're spending a few years in jail, it's, a, it, it's not so good for your wage rate when you come out. Not just because, even if you're, even if there was no stigma, if you didn't have a problem explaining that you weren't working for three years or you were making license plates, uh, whatever you could do before, uh, if you were in the labor market, uh, obviously has has decreased and your um, your skill set's kind of deteriorated a little bit. So it's it's a, that's another factor I had had never um, had, had never thought about. But let's talk about magnitudes for a minute. Now, two point three million people is a lot of people, but it, we're a big country. So mm-hmm. the way I took your data on um, the dropout rate, for example, is that if you look at the raw data without taking account of the effects you're discussing, uh, it looks like there's improvement over time from the '90s. That there's been reduction in the dropout rate. And what your work shows, and as you say, there's obviously, you could challenge it, but what you show is that it's actually flat. There's been no improvement. That's, mm-hmm. you could argue that's good news. At least it hasn't been, it hasn't gotten worse. Um, so it's true. It's not improving, but it's not getting worse, even if you include, uh, the invisible men that are the, the title in the title of your book. But just to give some general magnitudes, if we have 2.3 million, uh, folks in prison, or jail, what proportion of those are African-American and what proportion is that of the total African-American population so we can get a better idea of what the exclusion is that we're talking about? Yeah. So um, uh, just over 90% of all inmates are male. Um, and um, about among male inmates, uh, it's about 45% 
40, 45% are African American. Varies a little bit, um, depending on what facility, type of facility you're looking at. Um, and so what, what, one of the key things that I look at, um, is among, uh, young men, sort of the, we think of as the, the prime incarceration years, um, between the ages of about 20 and 35, um, that, uh, among, Young black men in that age group, um, it's about one in nine are incarcerated. So 11% roughly. Um, and then if we look at those with low levels of education. I got to stop you there just for a sec because, because people get confused about percentages and they get confused about what's in the denominator and what's in the numerator and sure. whether you're talking about in the prison population or the general population. So I just want to get yeah. Let me give you my interpretation of that number. So okay. you're saying that if you if you took young African American men, mm-hmm. all of them in America, eleven percent of that population is in jail. Yeah. And what would that corresponding number be for young white Americans, males? One point eight percent. So it's nine times eight times eight seven seven times higher roughly yeah yeah yeah, yeah seven times yeah. higher that's that's pretty depressing yeah so yeah so that's and and what we see i mean that there was there was racial inequality so my book really charts um changes from 1980 to 2008 that was really the last year in which data were available when i was working on the book and um you know and and so just for a point of comparison, in 1980, um, among that same age group of young black men, it was about 5%, 5.2% of civilian men um, were uh, uh, were incarcerated. So, so I, I basically exclude the military here. I'm not including the military. And then um, for those, um, for white men, it was uh, just over half a percent. It was 0.6 of, of a percent. So, um, and then if we go to 2008, it's 11.4% for young African Americans and 1.8% for young whites. So it's tripled, it's tripled for whites mm-hmm. and it has doubled for blacks. Is that correct? I yeah, get that right? More than, yeah, more than doubled. A little, yep. a little more than doubled. Yeah. So it's, at, yep. which is ironic given our earlier discussion. So the, but it, mm-hmm. it, it the, the, I think we're in the second or third derivative there is the problem, but, but the, right. the, um, they're just they're high numbers. The trend, right? The trend's one thing, but the but the level's very very depressing. Yeah. So, but then I think the the real the punchline or the I mean the issue for for me is that among young black men who've dropped out of high school, um, it's over a third. Thirty seven. My estimate suggests thirty seven percent are incarcerated on any given day. So that's more than more than a third of high school dropouts. Uh, of high school dropouts, which, you know, is, is a relatively, so if you think about what fraction of the total American population that is, that's relatively small. But and it's shrinking. It's, it's shrinking. But it's so, I think. well, <laughs> Excuse you know, me. my, my argument yeah. would say it, it's not shrinking. Yeah, actually, I, I actually, got, yeah, no, right? I, yeah, no, I, I actually, I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about a different comparison. I was thinking about college yeah. versus high school graduation. You know, the proportion sure. of Americans with the high school, with the college, gra- with the college degree has been growing. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. the proportion who are dropping out of high school um, can still be growing. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Sorry. Right. No. So, so if you think about um, about that, uh, more than one in three 
37, according to my estimates, not to be too precise, but, you know, 37. Money is a decimal percent. point, Becky? Yeah. <laughs> and, but among, and among whites, it's 12%. Right. So, I mean, so, so for white, for young white men who don't finish high school, which is, you know, idea. Yeah. Uh, it's, you it's know, it's the same, the incarceration rate is the same as it is, or a little higher than for young African American men, broadly speaking. And, and what that means, you know, I think what, what the point that I'm trying to make in my book is that, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not always focused on the glass being half empty, I don't, I don't, but I think that if we really, if the idea is that we want to design social policy and evaluate social policy and do social science research to really understand what generates inequality, we can't exclude the most disadvantaged segments because there's really important information there. Um, you know, people make the claim about the school-to-prison pipeline. I think the evidence, I mean, whether or not it's the school-to-prison or exactly how it works, I think, is, is a great source of debate. But the evidence that there's a really strong link between failing to complete high school and ending up in prison or jail is just overwhelming. And to take the economics piece of it, the monetary part of it, I should say. That, mm-hmm. And when people point out that not going to high school is an economic disadvantage and they look at uh, ratios, say, of college graduate earnings or high school graduate earnings to high school dropout earnings, your work suggesting that as bad as that is, it's worse if you could include the people who aren't even in the data set who are typically more likely to have dropped out of high school and then are in prison. Um, of course, there's also the effect that, having my earlier point, having been in prison... They've lowered their economic opportunities because their skills have depreciated. They have the stigma of being uh, former uh, prisoners, and as a result, um, so that high school dropout ratio is a mess. It, it has a lot going on there that, that needs to be disentangled uh, mm-hmm. when you're comparing wage rates of, of higher levels of education to high school dropouts. Because for, this, for that education class, this is a very significant phenomenon, which is mm-hmm. eye-opening. For me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time. Do you want to say anything cheerful about what <laughs> might be done to um, either, quote, improve this? Um, again, there's a tangled story here of personal responsibility and social policy, but uh, are there changes in social policy that, that you wish uh, were on the uh, agenda that aren't, that might make things better? For me, that's improving mm-hmm. the school system and getting rid of the minimum wage. But you, I'm sure, have different arguments, so I'd like to hear them. Well, I, I think, I mean, I, you know, I want to uh, borrow some insights that have been um, introduced and I think championed by some uh, very smart economists like um, uh, Alan Kruger and um, James Heckman. And, you know, to looking at, I mean, looking at the criminal justice system um, in many ways as a product um, of as as much as it is a product of of crime and criminal involvement, and thinking about it as a product of the education system, particularly you know the K twelve system and even earlier, and you know though they and others have you know made the argument that we really need to think about investing in early childhood education, K twelve education, exactly to prepare the to prepare young people for you know a range of careers in a rapidly changing economy and, you know, to, 
and in, and in many ways, hopefully, to avoid uh, spending time in prison or jail, particularly for those, you know, nonviolent pro- drug and property crimes. So I think that that strikes me as a um, one avenue, and I think it's something that people have increasingly talked about, particularly in the context of um, declining state budgets, where states at the state level are looking directly at these comparisons between K-12 education and uh, criminal justice spending. And, you know, in many ways, those dollars, um, they have to figure out how to allocate them. Um, so I think, you know, investing, seeing the growth of incarceration in its relationship to um, education, I think, is really important. And invest and thinking about the, the kind of... Um, what problems we're trying to solve with the criminal justice system. And I'm not sure that uh, custodial sentences are are the, the right way to go. I think there's lots of initiatives investing in education as a possibility. I think also these alternatives to sentencing, um, particularly in relation to, to drug offenses, um, drug treatment is a is a hugely important um, piece, I think, of the solution. So, and and we know we know a lot more now than we did 35 years ago about the physiological um, bases of of drug addiction and and other things. And and so we know better. And it strikes me that we can um, de- design treatment that is more appropriate to the real problem. So. You know, I, I, I don't know where we're going to go from here in the context of the 2.3 million incarcerated. Um, but I think that there are some, some potentially positive, uh, avenues. And I also want to say that, you know, I think directly related to my book is that I think it's important for us as social scientists to pay attention to, you know, the tale of the distribution, um, and, and try and find ways to incorporate that experience whether it be through expanding the survey efforts or doing the kinds of things that I did, which uh, involved combining data from different sources, to sort of get a handle on, you know, what the processes are at work, not just about criminal justice context, but also with respect to completing education or educational attainment, employment, voter turnout, I mean, a whole range of different things. And but I don't think I don't think we're going to get very far if we if we just ignore the the most disadvantaged segments. My guest today has been Becky Pettit. Becky, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.